listening to the Bible 126 show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We are in the fourth session of the book of Judges, chapter 6. Gideon, God's man in Manasseh. About 200 years have passed since the children of Israel marched around Jericho and they had the conquest of the land under Joshua that lasted about seven years. Because they failed to fully wipe out their enemies, which God told them to do, in instructions of Joshua and Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere, they didn't do that. And as a result, the pockets of Canaanite uh, tribes that were left grew in strength over the two centuries. And... Uh, They uh, regained strength enough that they ended up dominating and regulating the lives of Israel. Now, in chapter 6, we're going to discover there are four doubting questions that will emerge from our review. Does God really care about us? First 13 verses will, in effect, raise that issue. Does God really know what he's doing? Verses 14, the next 10 verses, we'll sort of deal with that. You'll say, of course he does, and <laughs> wait till you see what God does. Yeah. Will God take care of me, Gideon asked. These are all four doubts of Gideon. Will God take care of me? And then finally, does God keep his promises? Now, you can glibly say, well, we know the answer to those questions. Well, try to put yourselves in the shoes of this farmer and uh, and experience this interesting adventure. Judges 6, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The pattern in Judges will continue. It's downward spiral. Pattern is that they ignore what God tells them to do. They stay in idolatry. As a result, they get oppressed by some group. And when they finally get upset enough to cry to the Lord, the Lord will raise up a deliverer. But they're crying to be relieved of the symptom, not the cause. That's, re, you know, that's uh, uh, not repentance, it's remorse, big difference. Uh, God will raise up a deliverer and they'll get a respite for a while, but they'll fall right back into the pattern. And in fact, not only is that a pattern in each of the episodes in, in the book of Judges, it will be a downward spiral. It will gradually get worse. But in any case, um, we are uh, going to be looking here at the Midianites. For seven years, these marauders raided them. And usually they raid them right at harvest time. They're nomadic tribes. They'll move in there, take everything they've got, their, their cattle, their, all their food by force, leaving them destitute. The Midianites form a coalition, and they also have an advantage. They apparently are one of the earliest tribes to use camels in a military way. These cam- camels are very formidable. If you've ever been near one, they're big, very mobile, they can move about 100 miles a day in, in a military sense. This is the first recorded, in the, what we're going to run into, the first recorded uh, incidents of uh, camels. And uh, Now, the Midianites were descendants of uh, Abraham and Keturah. Not Sarah, Keturah, that was later wife, in, in Genesis 25. 
And they were defeated by Israel during the wilderness wanderings. Bear in mind, the Midianites were a nomadic group, and uh, they were from near the Gulf of Aqaba and south uh, east of there primarily. And uh, the Midianites subdued the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, the ones that we associate with the region we presently call Jordan. They'd come across the Jordan westward and maraud the Israelis when it was harvest time and take all their food. And that went on for seven years and made them incredibly destitute. This seven-year period of oppression is sandwiched between two 40-year periods of peace. But it's about the time of the eighth invasion we're talking about. It's been 200 years since Jericho. They failed to drive up their enemies. There's a sandwich between two 40-year periods of peace, these seven years of oppression by the Midianites, and it's in the eighth year that we're going to just take a look at in detail. And God is going to call a farmer to deal with this. We're going to look at the interesting odds. And God even diddles with the odds in a very interesting way. But anyway, so the children of Israel did evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them dens, which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so uh, they're hiding in... in uh, uh, in the ground, you talk about uh, men becoming mice. This is even they, they even descended lower. They became moles. <laughs> they lived in caves and, and in hiding. So it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up. The Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. In other words, just the Midianites are the lead group, but they have a coalition against them. I might mention, by the way, that there's more space given to Gideon in the book of Judges than any other leaders. He's the only one also whose personal struggles are chronicled. The other narratives are pretty much just an action shot. You will get an insight into his struggles, and that's perhaps one of the more valuable aspects of, of the record here from, from our point of view. He'll start his career as a coward in, in chapter 6. He will become a conqueror in chapter 7, but then he becomes a compromiser in uh, chapter 8. So it's a, it's a dismal record in that sense. But Gideon should give great encouragement to people who have a hard time accepting themselves and uh, believing that God can make anything out of them or do anything through them. If you're that kind of a person, for, privately, whatever, you'll probably find a great deal of uh, insight and comfort from Gideon. The main thing here, you should recognize that chastening of God's people is uh, evidence of God's hatred of sin on the one hand and his love for people on the other. And we can't conceive of a holy God wanting anything less than his very best for his children. And the very best he can give them is a holy character. And that's what God is trying to do here in shaping this situation. He's not a permissive parent that allows his children to do as they please. And obedience builds character and sin destroys character. So God can't sit by idly and let them sin. So he's using enemies of various kinds uh, to, to make his point. But unless suffering leads to repentance, it accomplishes no lasting good. Unless our Repentance is evidence of a holy desire to turn from sin. It's just escape from pain. It's only remorse. Now, as you notice there in verse 3, the third of verses there, he, uh, he, uh, the Midianites organized this coalition to invade the land. But all Israel could do was flee to the hills and hide. And they were obviously way outnumbered and outclassed by these professional warriors, really, brigands. Now, you've all seen movies, westerns typically, where the bad guys come through the little peasant town and shoot it all up and steal all their goods, and what can they do? And uh, there's a number of Westerns built around that theme. Uh, there's the injustice of, of people who are trying to just raise crops and raise a family and being at the pawns of, 
of the guys with the muscle. And in most of these stories, of course, there's a hero of some kind that you know redeems the the settlers or the peasants or whatever. Well, it's very much that kind of a story, <laughs> with some interesting uh, additions. Um, now, the Amalekites, by the way, were from the south, south of Judah, and the children of the east referred to here are nomads of the Syrian desert, and uh, probably including some Edomites and Ammonites. Well, they encamped against them and uh, destroyed the increase of the earth, their crops and so forth, till thou come into Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. And so uh, they lived off the land. They just brutalized it and uh, traveling with their camels and so forth. It's a formidable threat. And they came up uh, with their cattle and their tents. They came as grasshoppers or locusts, if you will, for multitude. Both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Whenever we cry to the Lord, what happens? Does he answer? You betcha. And when we get to that place of desperation and brokenness, he always responds, and that's often where he wants us in the first place, because the only time that we really turn to him to, to have him respond. But in any case, uh, came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth from the house of bondage. And he'll go on. But let me make a couple of points here. It's interesting, we always sort of assume that Samuel was the first of the prophets. That's often the impression you get from the book of Acts and elsewhere. Uh, there have actually been some prophets before because this is the second one sent in this book already. And also, remember, Deborah was a prophetess. But uh, So uh, some of those uh, generalizations we run into in Bible study and so forth aren't quite correct. Uh, we usually think of the prophets as starting with Samuel. Back there in chapter 2, the Lord also sent an, the angel of the Lord, who we believe is a Christophany, that is the appearance of Christ before the Incarnation, to reprove the people and so forth. It's interesting, the reason I paused here, it's interesting to notice how often when God is announcing himself that his primary achievement he seems to always allude to is their deliverance from Egypt. I mean, the Lord did a lot of wonderful things. But it's interesting how that is a major identity piece for him. And um, it has occurred at least uh, 12 times. I, I was going to do a search and count them just for fun, but didn't finish. But I know there was at least a dozen places where God identifies himself to the Jews as the one that brought them out of Egypt. One reason is because that's when the nation was born. The nation as a nation is considered as being born in the, in the Exodus. And literally, they went down as a family, they came out as a nation. And uh, uh, he speaks of Israel as my firstborn. And so in that sense, Israel started with Exodus. And uh, that's why, uh, don't confuse the Israel with the church. They have different origins and different missions and different destinies. Church was born in Acts 2. The, uh, Israel was born in Exodus 12. Anyway, it's interesting how often he makes that identity. And God says through the prophet, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But ye have not obeyed my voice. So this is, you know, an uh, indictment. But then this is where we have Gideon called. That was a prophet speaking so far. But in verse 11 it says, And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under the oak, which is an Ophrah, that pertained to the Joash the Abizrite. 
and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. <laughs> so here we have a farmer, in fact, a farmer's son, who is hiding behind a winepress, thrashing his wheat. Now, that happens to tell you a great deal, because the way you normally thrashed wheat was to drive a sledge pulled by oxen over it on a threshing floor, a large area. The fact that he was trying to thrash this behind a olive press tells you there wasn't much there. They were destitute. And he's also trying to do it in such a way that the Midianites won't spot him. And so he's hiding. And so it's interesting that the angel of the Lord, and most scholars believe that was an Old Testament appearance of Christ himself, is posing in effect he's sitting under a shade of a tree, an oak tree, as if he's a traveler. Joash is an Abizarite, which is of the clan of Manasseh. We learned from Joshua 17. But before we go on, we're going to find this. Obviously, Gideon's going to be our hero. He's a farmer, and he's frightened, understandably. Before we get too hard on Gideon, picture yourself as a farmer, no military training, and you're being marauded here for seven years. This is the eighth year it's going to come. And he's going to be the big hero of the piece tonight. But, I, you know, it's interesting to look at the resumes of the people God uses. Moses was 80 years old and wanted for murder when God called him out of Midian. Jacob was a schemer and a con artist. God can justify Jacob. He can justify any of us. A lot of conference. Elijah and Jeremiah both suffered from depression. Boy. Hosea couldn't keep his marriage together. Amos also was a farmer and had no ministry training, made a name for himself. Peter tried to kill a man with a sword. John Mark was a quitter. Paul couldn't get along with his associates like Barnabas. In fact, couldn't stay out of prison. <laughs> if you saw the resume and you were on a church board thinking of hiring a pastor, you know. <laughs> Somewhere in my father, I got someone did a resume of Paul. And you read it, you can't believe it until you realize who it is. You know, I mean, it's as if he's applying for a job in a church, you know. Here's my background, goes through it, you know. There's strange resumes that God chooses to use. But here's the key to it. What Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 26. Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty are called, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things are not, that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. And the extremes that God goes to in this situation is probably unparalleled in the scriptures, we'll see shortly. Anyway, Gideon's called. Gideon says unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of Midianites. Now we can be very critical. Here he's talking to the Lord who's calling him to redeem him. It's easy for us with 20-20 hindsight to be very critical. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes. He's down. I won't ask for a show of hands, but there's probably a lot of us in this room that are down the same way. People who've tried God and are discouraged because somehow everything didn't turn to roses when they came to Christ or whatever. Now that's to Gideon, you know, gee, where are all the miracles? And, and he obviously, for God doesn't love us anymore. He's forsaken us. And look, he's delivered us in the Midianites. 
Look, he's given us this list of problems. And then you put your financial, marital, health, whatever, the list of problems. And blame God for it. And uh, verse 12. I skipped over verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now this is Gideon. You got the wrong guy. You rang the wrong, wrong doorbell this time. Man of valor. Is that being satirical? I don't think so. But it's prophetic. And one of the things we should recognize is that God sees us that way. Here, God is looking, has already credited Gideon with valor that he will show future. He doesn't even know it's coming. But as far as God's concerned, he knows the end from the beginning. As far as it's complete. You and I are in the same place. And this is a place where if I have the time, I'd read Romans 8. Put it in your notes, Romans 8, verses 28 to about verse 30. For we know that all things work together for good to them who are loved God and so forth. Read that passage. But notice that it reads of those that are, God has chosen in the completed sense. Let's turn to Romans 8. and just It's a familiar passage to most of you, I'm sure, but I want you to notice the tense of the verbs there. It's important. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You probably should have a tab on your Bible. I check my Bible once a day to make sure it hasn't gone away. The 28 is still there. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The three most important words that verse are the first three. And we know, not suspect or hope, no, we know that uh, all things work together for good to them who, that love God and to them who are the called according to His purpose. Are you called according to His purpose? Then let's read on. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he called, justified, them he also glorified. And what shall we say then to these things? What, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Read the rest of that passage. It's incredible. But I, I better keep moving here. The point is, I want to tell you something. Listen to me carefully. I am one of the few throughout history that have been selected, elected, and chosen by God to be part of His eternal family. Say, gee, Chuck, that sounds pretty self-centered. It happens to be very true. But the reason I am so bold in saying that, so are you. So are you. You can make that statement. In the wrong context, it can sound pretty strange. But the point is, it's a true statement. When when God says, Thou mighty man of valor, and, and Gideon gags on that probably to begin with. Gideon said, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Hey, fellow, that's why he's talking to you. He's going to end it. So anyway, we'll go on here. Now, we had, I said there are four doubting questions that Gideon had. The first one, does God really care about us? And that's the first 13 verses we've been there. The next thing he's going to, in effect, be asking, does God know what he's doing? And if you watch what's going on, you'll probably have the same thought in your mind as we look at the next 10 verses. The Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? said to him, O oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. It's interesting that the Lord, in verse 14, doesn't answer his question. He doesn't deal with those questions that he threw up back a few verses ago. 
He just gives them an assignment. You know, he just don't philosophize, don't theologize or question or analyze. Just get going. There's work to be done. See, his first response was to question God's concern for his people. And then he questions God's wisdom in choosing him. And by the way, before you get too critical with him, remember Moses did the same thing. Remember I thought they're burning bush? He gives God all these excuses. I've got a stutter and I'm slow of speech and da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, by the way, it's interesting that Gideon already probably was an outcast within his family because his family worshipped Baal and Gideon did not. But his family did. We'll learn in a few verses later. And his claim to poverty is a little perplexing because we'll later see that he took ten servants with him on an errand. So it may be that his clan wasn't that important in Manasseh is one thing, or it may be just that an etiquette of humility that caused him to express himself this way. He certainly felt that he could do nothing and that his family was nothing. I wouldn't take anything away from that. But um, then the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midians as one man. You know, as if they were just one man is what he's really saying, okay? And as we read, God chooses the weak things of this world and so forth. But he's always willing to be patient with us if we're willing to submit to his, his will. God's commands are God's enablements, is the ground rule. He said to me, if I have now found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, the Gideon talking, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. Interesting. So God is graciously accommodating himself to Gideon's unbelief. And so Gideon goes ahead and he went in and he made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour, and the flesh he put in a basket, put forth the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented. So here's Gideon presenting the Lord an offering. Now understand, these people are destitute. They're in famine. And this is a very, very, an ephah is about a half a bushel. What he's given them could probably feed the whole family for a better part of a week. And he's presenting this as an offering, non-trivial. Probably would have taken him an hour to put this all together, but God waited. And then the angel of the God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. <laughs> then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there rose up a fire out of the rock, consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and I assume that Gideon was suitably impressed. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Whew. Gone. And Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. What's implied in that sentence is Gideon was sure he was going to die. That was believed. That was fatal. For a sinful man to look upon God, and, and he was sure he'd die. And that's based on uh, Exodus 33.20. It was a common belief. And, and of course the Lord says, uh, Peace be unto you, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there. And I could, all, I could argue that he now has an altered life. Okay? All right. Yeah, terrible pun, but you'll remember it, right? Okay. Uh, then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom, the uh, peace of God. Unto this day it is yet uh, in Ophrah of the Ab Abizites. 
Well, that brings us to that, the, will God take care of me in the next few verses and the four doubting questions. It came to pass that same night, the Lord said, I'm take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. Now, by the way, <laughs> that's a gutsy move. That is a really gutsy move. The altars of Baal were very elaborate affairs, and to just to bring to tear down that altar overnight was a job. Then he's going to build an altar to the Lord. That's simpler because the Lord wanted uncut stones, you know, just stacked was the way they built their altars. And uh, he built an altar to the Lord that I got up on the top of this rock in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. There's a lot of elements here. First of all, he's going to tear down his father's sacred altar to Baal. Big job. Then he's going to build an altar to the Lord. Then he's going to take his father's prize bullock, the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice there. And he's going to use as fuel the sacred Asherah. Next to these altars of Baal was a pole and a, a, a wood called an Asherah. Frankly, it's called a, it's a phallic symbol. But he used the wood, cut it up to be the wood for the fire. How do you think his dad's going to take onto this the next morning? He's in deep yogurt, huh? Well, we'll see. Anyway, that's what God tells him to do in verses 25 and 26. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did, see, it was a big job, and did as the Lord had said unto them. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, he did it by night. So he did this overnight. Because it's going to be a very, very interesting gathering in the morning. Now, <laughs> you say, gee, he's got a gutless here, he's doing it at night. Well, wait a minute, guys. Nicodemus even went to Christ at night. You know, there's, there's time, there are things you do. Uh, uh, low, low profile, if I may put it that way. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, <laughs> guess what? Behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, that is provided firewood. The, gro the word grove is really these, these Asherahs. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. They said to one another, Who hath done this thing? When they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So you think Gideon's going to be toast here, huh? Now, by the way, thereafter, Gideon's hide. But Gideon should be after their hide because what they've been doing, worshiping Baal, is a capital offense. It should have been a capital offense. They, got, they, they had this backwards. And, uh, so, um, but anyway, Joash obviously had every reason to be upset with his son. Men of city said to Joash, Bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cut, cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. But who's really in charge here? God is. And he's been working on Joash's heart. And Joash has his moment of, in my mind, of, of glory here, because Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Here's Joash. Joash is not very loyal, steadfast, loyalist to Baal. He says, if he's laying there on the ground, he's no god. Let him defend himself. That's exactly the thing that Elijah was going to do some years later, up at Mount Carmel. He makes fun of Baal. All the priests of Baal, they have the little contest, the two. Elijah sets up the, the contest where the, the priests of Baal go first, set up their altar, put their offering on it. 
and call Baal down to come light it off. And they get up there and do all their ceremonial things till noon, half the day. Nothing happens, of course. Elijah's in the next hill making fun of him. Maybe you're, maybe Baal's hard of hearing. Maybe you can, and if you watch that dialogue, it, it is really 1 Kings 18. He finally gets to verse 20 and says, maybe he can't hear. Maybe he's out there relieving himself. It says pursuing the King James. The Hebrew applies, Elijah's saying he, he's probably going to the bathroom or something. He can't hear you. And of course, after taunting him, he finally puts his offering together. Then he douses it three times with water as a handicap and calls, and of course, the fire comes down and consumes it. Elijah doesn't quit there. He slaughters the 450 priests of Baal. And you know the story. Same thing, though. Anyway, but, uh, so Joash, in, a, in sort of a miniature in advance, sort of same thing. He's going to, he's in effect defending his son. And therefore, in that day, he called him, that is Gideon, Jerub Baal. That stands for uh, Baal's antagonist. Let Baal plead for himself. Let Baal plead against him because he hath thrown down his altar. That name, by the way, becomes the label of Gideon in chapters 8 and 9. Later on, you'll see Jerob Baal uh, is, is the nickname, if you will, of, of Baal. You know, it's interesting how often these epithets that are intended to be derogatory become metals, you know, so to speak. Remember during the Revolutionary War, the English called the Yankee Doodle, made fun of them. And they grabbed that and ran with it. And it became a, a, a source of pride. In the 70s, we spoke of the Jesus Freaks. It was derogatory at first by the press. And yet most of those have, are, are, have become the outstanding pastors of the 90s. So Gideon will be referred by his nickname too. So uh, that brings us to the fourth. Does, does God keep his promises? Well, let's take a good look and see. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. They came in from, from the uh, east side of the Jordan, across the Jordan. They are in that region that is just south of the Sea of Galilee. It's in the plain of Jezreel, which is the same place that we were in last time. It's in the shadow, in effect, of Mount Megiddo. It's the same site that Deborah and Barak defeated Sisera. It's the same place that the climactic battle on the planet Earth, known as Armageddon, Mount Megiddo, it's the same area. It's amazing how much happens there. Now, what have they got there? We find out, I'm looking ahead a little bit, they have 135,000 trained warriors with camels and weapons. These guys are professionals. They're brigands. They make their living looting. In fact, of Mount Megiddo, it's the same site that Deborah and Barak defeated Sisera. It's the same place that the climactic battle on the planet Earth, known as Armageddon, Mount Megiddo, it's the same area. It's amazing how much happens there. Now, what have they got there? We find out, I'm looking ahead a little bit, they have 135,000 trained warriors with camels and weapons. These guys are professionals. They're brigands. They make their living looting. We are in the fourth session of the book of Judges, chapter 6. Gideon, God's man in Manasseh, about the fact of Mount Megiddo, it's the same site that Deborah and Barak defeated Sisera. It's the same place that the climactic battle on the planet Earth, known as Armageddon, Mount Megiddo. It's the same area. It's amazing how much happens there. Now, what have they got there? We find out, I'm looking ahead a little bit, they have 135,000 trained warriors with camels and weapons. 
These guys are professionals. They're brigands. They make their living looting. And there's 135,000 of them. Get, get that, let's get that number in our mind. That's a bunch. This isn't just, you know, a few rowdies. This is a, a large, large contingent by today's standards. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Notice that carefully. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, that is, that's what the baptism of the Spirit's all about. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So this guy has a secret weapon, the Holy Spirit. And he blew a trumpet. And Abiezer, was, that's his clan, was gathered after him. So we're already beginning to see the fruits of that event that he did uh, a little while ago. When he, when he apparently, when he tore down the altar of Baal and, and, and did all that, they had that confrontation, his reputation went all over the land. And like often these things, they probably get you know larger than life. But the point is, when he blew his trumpet, his clan uh, rallied around him. And then he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. That's the whole region. Then he sent messengers into Asher, into Zebulun, and Naphtali. These are four tribal areas. It's basically the northern third of Israel up there. And they came up to meet him. So he's rounded up a bunch, a terrific bunch, 32,000. That's a bunch, but compare that to 135. They've still got problems. Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I'll put fleece. He, you know, this is where Gideon wants some confirmation. He's going up against 135. You know, a lot of people are pretty hard on Gideon, saying this is uh, several commentators that I hold very highly feel this. Well, it just shows how his unbelief and his faith, lack of faith. No, he's, he's, looking, he's looking for a confirmation. This is what God, God's, this is the time. So if thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the floor, and if dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then I shall know that thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said. And it was so. Next morning, he rose up early in the morning, and thr- thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a full bowl of water. Well, as any could say, gee, it was dew on the ground, and just the, the ground dried up. It would dry quicker than things. So Gideon says, well, let's turn around the other way. Gideon says, let's, let not that anger be hot against me, God. I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. You notice the emphasis, this is a one-time thing? This is not a general biblical principle. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'll do this but once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece and all the ground. Let there be dew. That's just the opposite. That's tougher. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on the ground. That's called putting out the fleece. It's become a, an idiom in the Christian community among religious people. But it's not necessarily an appropriate method for determining the will of God. It could be only evidence of unbelief, and uh, it has its dangers. But it can be an approach, as used by some people, like Gideon did here, may lack the confidence that this is exactly what God wants him to do. And so he asked for a miracle, in fact, two of them, and he got that. Wet first, the fleece was wet and dry on the ground. Dry fleece, wet ground. But the point is God is clearly giving him a signal, let's get on with it. He's messing around for two days, right? Now, I've gone through a lot of commentators, and it's interesting how some commentators are really hard on Gideon about this fleece thing. But, you know, I don't encourage the fleece thing for some reasons I'll come to. But this is not unique. You remember in Genesis 24, Abram commissions his servant Eliezer to go get a bride for Isaac. 
and he goes to the far country. When he gets to this well, he says, Lord, if this woman offers not only to give me water, but my camels too, I'll know she's the guy. He confirms the bride for Isaac by seeing if a woman came to a well and offered to draw water for him and his camels. And she did, and that's Rebecca and the whole story. But he did the same thing, sort of. You follow me? There's another case. Jonathan is armor bearer. I love this one. They're against the whole Philistine army. And after dinner one night, Jonathan grabs his armor bearer and says, let's go see. We don't know that the Lord might deliver the entire army into our hand tonight. Now, if you were his armor bearer, you'd say, what have you been drinking? You're, 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 you're nuts. And the armor says, okay, what do we say? Let's go. So they went up this hill and they, and they deliberately let a, set, a Philistine sentry know they were there on this cliff. And he said, if they come down at us, We'll go. If they invite us to go up there, we know the Lord will use that as the Lord has delivered them into our hand. That's exactly what happened. And these two guys create a commotion that creates confusion in the whole Philistine army, and the whole army's on the run. First Samuel 14, great line. Great, great, great story. Great place. Uh, Jonathan is armor bearer. But again, they set up this sort of signal. The Lord will t- if this happens, then this or this, we'll know which the Lord wants us to do. It's a fleece, in effect. And remember Ahaz, King Ahaz, God himself challenges Ahaz. Ask me a sign. Well, Ahaz doesn't want to buy into that, so God gives, I'll give you a sign. Sign to the house of David, that a, that a virgin shall conceive in our son. It sets up the stage for that famous prediction, prophecy by Isaiah, of the virgin giving birth. Again, you know, so, fleeces. I'm going to suggest they're only valid if the word of God has not already spoken to the issue. Many people use fleeces. It's amazing. They can get themselves in real trouble. Wait a minute. Has God already spoken on the issue? And we should also be careful not limiting the Lord. The Lord may have the same sort of goal in mind, but He has a different way of going at it. Don't put Him in a box. You certainly do this only if you're really serious. Are you really committed, barring all reservation? The leading of the Holy Spirit is what you're really after. You and I have an advantage that Gideon didn't. We have the Spirit of God living within us. There's much more powerful ways to know what God would have you do. Let's, uh, we won't have time to go through the whole chapter 7, but we do have to set ourselves up for the incredible battle that's coming. Judges chapter 7. We're going to size now the attacking force. We've decided Gideon's going to lead them, and he's going to go against a uh, trained, well-equipped army with, in effect, cavalry, uh, 135,000. Baal, who is uh, Gideon, and all the people that were with him, all 32,000, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod. No, not, not Herod like the king, a different word, and it's a spring that uh, is there by the, in that region. Anyway, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. You're going to go up against 135,000 with your 32,000. But you've got too many. Really? You mean uh, four to one odds against us gives us too much of an advantage? Right. No, the real reason is lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand hath saved me. If they went against the Midianites, outnumbered only four to one, and win, they'd begin to say, Whoa, look what we did. Does that sound like the Six-Day War? Does that sound like the Yom Kippur War? You know, think of the modern wars today that Israel Israel has won. They're very proud of that. They've got a military that's very formidable. And they deserve a lot of accolades in many ways. But who's really doing all that? It ain't the Mossad. 
And with all due respect, it's not Sharon or any of the other great generals. It's the Lord. In spite of the fact that they're not following him by his grace. So God says, uh, people are with thee are too many for me to give the Midians into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go, go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. Now this is an interesting thing because this is in the scripture, by the way. This is uh, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. Fearful recruits can be summarily dismissed. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000. And there remained 10,000. In other words, of the 32,000, 22 says, you know, I'm not too comfortable with this going up against 135,000. Four to one odds make me a little nervous. You guys go take care of it. I'm going home. That left 10,000. So now they're, now the odds aren't four to one. They are 14 to one. Okay. 13 and a half to one if you want to quibble. Okay. That's pretty good odds. I mean, that's pretty rough. You know, if you, if you can win a battle with 13 to one against you, I think you have reason to feel you did pretty good. That's the problem. 10,000 versus 135,000. That's pretty exciting. So the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. Really? Bring them down into the water and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And whosoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So they're going to make the final cut here. Okay, and, and, and the Lord's the coach. So he brought down the people into the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink, uh, the number of them that lap, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men, putting their hand to their mouth. But the re- all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink the water. So the point is, ninety-seven hundred of these guys drank the water one way, and three hundred didn't do it that way. The way it's usually perceived. But the, by the way, scholars argue about this because the, the language is actually a little ambiguous is that some, the, the vision you always have in the Sunday school coloring books, is that the 300 held their staff and stayed watchful and drank with their hand out of the water, staying alert. That's the usual picture. And you can defend that view. Um, the others, you know, water, boy, they just got right down there and lapped it up like a dogwood, so to speak. The discernment that people infer, it's not, not necessarily implied, inferred, is that, well, the ones that were watchful are the ones the Lord took. It turns out you can argue it both ways. In fact, Josephus, in his commentary, believes that the 300 that were picked were the ones that weren't watchful. That they was, this was an additional handicap. The 9700 were alert. Don't want those. I want these losers. <laughs> so I don't know which way it is, but you see, there are, there are two views is the point. I just want to be aware that there's two views. And so, so God's adjusting the odds. The enemy has 135,000. We start out with 32,000. That was 4.2 to 1. That's kind of a healthy disadvantage. God says, uh-uh, that's not good enough. Take away the 22,000 that are fearful. Now we got 10,000. Now it's 13 and a half to 1. That's getting a little more challenging. And God's rolling up his sleeves. Hey, this is going to get, this is going to be better. Let's go a little further. The ones that are not watchful or whatever, uh, 9,700, we now have an attack force of 300 guys that are going to go against a trained army, well-equipped, of 135,000. It's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. If they win, you know the Lord did it. 
And that's the way the Lord likes to play. That there's no doubt as to who really gets the credit. We can salute these 300 guys and we can give them little medals and treat them well in the, in the neighborhood, but the guy that redid it is Jehovah. And the Lord said unto Gideon, by the 300 men that lapped, will I give you, or will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand and let all the other people go every man into his place. Not permanently, by the way. They're on leave of absence. Because when the confusion starts and these, and the enemies are on the run, everybody gets in the act to clean up the mess. Okay? As you'll see. So the people took vittles in their hand and their trumpets and set all the rest of Israel, every man, unto his tent and retained those 300 men and the host of Midian was beneath them in the valley. Can you get this picture? They're in the hills, 300 guys. Down there in the valley are 135,000 troops. Who knows how many camels and tents and all the rest. Came to pass that same night the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered unto thine hand. But, Gideon, if thou fear to go down, go thou with uh, Phurah, the thy servant, down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they, shall, what they say. And afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. The Lord said, Okay, Gideon, I want you to get down there. If you're, if you're a little nervous, don't sweat it. Get you, take your servant, go down there closely and listen to what they're saying. And you'll be encouraged. That's really what the Lord is saying. So they went down with his servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. They get down close enough to overhear their conversations, slipping down in the, the brush. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. Can you picture this? Can you, can you do your, your production uh, management here? And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. They get close enough, two guys are talking. And one guy's telling his buddy a dream he had. He says, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian, and came into a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it, that the tent lay along. This was the dream the guy had, Right? His fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. In other words, the barley, the barley cake that rolled is a very natural idiom of Israel. Barley was a cheap, you know, the poor man's type of grain, and, and that's all, that's what they were surviving on. And that, that rolled down into this Midian tent and collapsed it and destroyed it, right? So this guy interprets it. He says, This is nothing else than save the sword of Gideon and the son of Joash, the man of Israel. For unto his, they apparently knew his name. See, his reputation was made. Somehow that incident we read a little about a little while ago became a big cause celeb throughout the region. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the hosts. Now there's one of two possibilities. He might be saying this cynically, disparagingly, as jokingly. Doesn't mean that he necessarily rebought it. You with me? That uh, that's possible. Or this might also be, and the way it's usually viewed, assumed by most common expositors, is that. It, uh, this is an indication that they were nervous. This, his, this interpretation, if it's a serious interpretation, is that uh, is evidence is that they're sweating it. This is nothing else than save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. For unto his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. This could be a declaration of belief on his part. And that's the way it's generally viewed, and that's the way uh, Gideon will receive it, on the one hand. 
But it's also possible, so just so you understand this possibility here, it might have just been a cynical, disparaging crack, kidding, as guys do in a barracks, you know, if you've been there. It's interesting that this is not, this is not unprecedented because um, you may remember in John 11, verse 50, Caiaphas, the high priest, when they were taking counsel against Christ, he made the crack. He says, uh, it is expedient that one man die for all the people. And it was an offhand remark by Caiaphas, but it's recorded in John 11.50, but then recounted again in John 18, verse 14. This Caiaphas was the same guy that said it was expedient. In other words, it was a remark he made. Now here is an unbeliever, in fact, one of the accusers of Christ, and yet it became a prophecy. It was expedient that one man die for all the people in a way that he never dreamed. So, see, there, there are occasions when the offhand remark, even by an enemy, can be used by God. And it's used right here because this, this guy telling his buddy the dream and interpreting it, when Gideon hears that, he receives it as a sign from God. And in verse 15, it was so that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped and he returned unto the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And I made it in our allotted time. I, I, I will have, the next time we will look at this with maps and show you exactly what happened. And we're going to see the strangest battle of all. And uh, obviously they really clobbered the Midianites. But we're also going to discover that there's some very strange, even stranger aftermaths of this battle. So as we uh, go from into chapter 7 and 8 of our study of Gideon. So let's uh, uh, stand for a closing few thoughts and a word of prayer. Gideon, an unlikely leader that God raised up and chose to do an incredible work. This room is full of unlikely leaders, including the one standing up here at the pulpit. God raises up unlikely leaders. And if you feel uncomfortable, if you feel unaccepted, if you feel that, gee, I couldn't do that or couldn't do that, you're probably absolutely right, but God can. And one of the most exciting discoveries of your entire life is when God calls you, and He will call each one of you. Maybe not to be a Gideon and take on 135,000 armed warriors. Maybe something even bigger. Don't know. But one of the things I want to challenge you as we go through this is to consider the possibility that God has something for you as a Gideon. God has something that He would call you to, and He will. His commandments are His enablements. He'll provide you all you need. And the, the more unlikely you are in that role, the more it may suit God's purpose. God did not choose a natural leader in Israel. God did not choose 12 learned experts, influentials in his culture to be disciples. Picked some unlearned fishermen and a few others. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But in this room, oh, I wish we could know what, what's coming. Some, there, there are people in this room that if we could behold what they're going to be doing a few months, a few years from now, I think we'd sit there and just 
Take our breath away. What does it require? Willingness, availability. Your willingness to go before the throne of God and put yourselves, all that you are, all that you might be, in God's hands and see what He's going to do. Every day, God finds a different way to ask you, do you trust Him? Do you believe His promises? Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the example that You've crafted here in Gideon because You recognize, Father, that we too are without excuse that whatever You would have of us, Father, You can accomplish if we bring but one thing, a willingness to be, to be obedient to Your call, to be obedient to Your Word, to be responsive step by step. One step at a time. So, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which is, which can rearrange the odds in our favor no matter what we're up against. We thank you, Father, for your spirit. We thank you for your word. But above all, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for all our debts and provided his eligibility for our, our access to your throne. We do pray, Father, that you would be clear in what you would have of each of us. We identify with Gideon as he sought so desperately, be really, really sure that he was where you wanted him. Father, we seek that same assurance, but we seek it through your Holy Spirit, Father, that you in your own way would make clear to each of us what you would have of us in the days that remain. As we come before you, Father, offering ourselves. We do pray, Father, without reservation, if you would just take us, Father, and use us for your purposes, to your glory. We ask you, Father, to show yourself strong in each of our lives, to do a work that would magnify your name, that would glorify Jesus Christ, in whose name we do come before you. Amen.